Welcome to the Trinity Reformed Church Podcast. Sermon by Jason Cherry on November 8th, Lord's Day Service. This morning's sermon text comes from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Please stand for the reading of God's Word. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, you are our God. The Bible is your word. And your words are true. Give us this morning a biblical vision of unity as rooted in the unity of the Father, Son, and Spirit. We pray this for the sake of your name. Amen. 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 We are in the middle of a series on our church distinctives, our, our points of emphasis. And today we introduce the distinctive of Catholicity. And I'm going to go ahead and say up front that this is a very wide topic, and we will not be able to cover all of the different things that need to be covered. And it's also the sort of topic that will invite questions and conversation, and we welcome those questions and conversation. Uh, and so we invite that, and we ask that you find people on the steering committee if you would like to talk more about this distinctive of Catholicity. Now this has nothing to do with the Roman Catholic Church. The word Catholic comes from a Greek word that means universal. The word Catholic simply refers to the universal body of Christ. It refers to the whole body of Christ. So then Catholicity simply means God's people pursuing unity in submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. In practice, it just means Obeying Jesus by getting along with other believers. We're going to let Ephesians chapter 4 verses 1 through 6 be our guide into Catholicity this morning. The primary clause of verses 1 through 3 is found in verse 1, where Paul exhorts to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So what is this calling that Paul refers to? Well, this refers to God's effectual call, where he called your faith into existence. It's the sort of call, it's the sort of summons that guarantees a response. And so he says, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And so the question for us is, how do we do that? How do we walk in a manner worthy of this calling? And the answer he gives us is found in verse 3, when he says, 
eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And so the way we walk in a manner worthy of the calling is to maintain unity with other believers. And so that means our first job this morning is to associate in our minds these two things. Two things that I suspect are not commonly associated in the mind of the average evangelical Christian. The things you must associate is, to walk in a manner worthy, you must walk in unity with God's people. And that means that the call to Christ is a call to the body of Christ. It's a call to unity with the body of Christ. It's a call to unity with the people of God. And so as we look at this passage this morning, our focus will be on verse 3, which tells us, again, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And as we consider the exhortation to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, we'll consider two questions. The first question is, how? How do we maintain this unity? And the second question is, why? Why is it that God would call us to maintain this unity? And so the first question, how? How do we maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Well, the task of walking worthily entails a standard. To do this, the Ephesians and all other believers need to develop a set of habits and dispositions. And in verse 2, Paul gives us five virtues that Christians should cultivate as a means to maintain unity. And if you look at verse 2, you see the first of those virtues is humility. This is about the lowliness of mind. It's about recognizing the worth and value of other people before recognizing your own worth. And that's why I always cringe when Christians are duped into the pop psychology that says, your first responsibility is to love yourself. Well, that's not a biblical idea. Do you know where that comes from? It comes from Book 1, Chapter 2 of John John Jock Rousseau's book, The Social Contract. That is an Enlightenment idea from the Enlightenment philosophers, and it does not come from the Bible, and it is not a Christian idea. And yet a lot of Christians have taken the notion of loving yourself first, put some Christian psychology on top of it, and have presented it well-packaged to the Christian church. But that's not what we're called to do. We're called, we see here, verse 2, we're called to humility, which is to recognize the worth and value of other people before you recognize your own worth. And therefore, just as slaves crouch before their masters, we ought to humbly value our brothers and sisters. Just as Christ emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, looking to the interest of others, so too should we. The second virtue found in verse 2 is gentleness. This is meekness. Gentleness is not the opposite of strength. Meekness is not the opposite of confidence. It's the opposite of harshness. It is strength under control. The third virtue is patience. Patience is long-suffering. It is emotional calm in the face of provocation. And this word in scripture is often used in the context of suffering. We're told, be patient in suffering. 
which shapes our understanding of the virtue of patience. In other words, even in the midst of suffering, instead of losing control, instead of losing your faith, instead of complaining, you remain seated in your heart. Your heart doesn't jump. Your heart doesn't waver. The fourth virtue is forbearance. For, for bearing other people. So this is not the idea of bearing each other's burdens. Though that is a biblical idea, it's found in Galatians 6.2, but it's not what it's talking about here. This is the idea of bearing people. It's the idea of tolerating annoying people. It's the idea of enduring people. Bearing with their weakness, as you think they're weak. Bearing with their failures. And then the fifth virtue is love. And this really goes with the fourth one. Love. This is the final virtue. And so to love someone is to have high regard for them. It's the opposite of hate. In practice, it means when you love someone, you constructively and actively seek their welfare. Now, these five virtues are not about personal piety. They are about Christian communities. So think of these five virtues as the foundation stones of Christian unity. Where these virtues are absent, Christian unity will be absent. Now, why is that so? Why is it that these things are essential to Christian unity? Well, I imagine you could give several examples yourself. The examples could be endless. So let's just say that these virtues are essential for Christian unity because Christians don't always see eye to eye on everything. Now, if you're new to the church, you're new to the faith, this should not be cause for alarm. This isn't unexpected. When God saved the people for himself, he knew there would be time of disagreement among even the most faithful people of God, even among the most faithful Christians. It is within the realm of possibility that within a local church, there might be a few genuine but crotchety Christians <laughs> that shouldn't scare you away, that shouldn't cause you to doubt the validity of Christianity or of Christ the Savior. There are people who are cantankerous. They are judgmental. They are not cooperative. And they're found in every local church. Perhaps you're familiar with this phenomenon. <laughs> Our church will not be exempt. And so if you're coming here to escape those people, you're going to be dissatisfied. You might be looking at one, quite frankly. <laughs> there might be some people who think that every molehill is a mountain. There are others who think all mountains are molehills. Well, there's going to be conflict between those two people. There are some people who have no sense of proportion. And so they take their pet issue or their pet doctrine and they make it the thing. And when you don't think it's the thing, it's hard to imagine you can be a Christian. <laughs> they have no sense of proportion and they want to divide over their pet thing or over every disagreement that flows from their pet thing. And they want to take other people with them into their embittered religion. I believe the philosopher Johnny Cash said, misery loves company. So what are we to do? Christians don't always see eye to eye. Some Christians are hard to get along with. 
What are we to do? Well, the solution is not to take it to Facebook. The solution is to teach people the uniting bond of peace. Do you remember what verse 3 said? Look at it again. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. You see, the bond of peace that genuine Christians share in Christ precludes all ranklings of peevishness or ill will against fellow Christians just because they see things slightly different from you. And, here's the key, visibly so. The only possible point Paul can have in giving us these five virtues and calling us to maintain the unity of the Spirit is that Christians do this visibly. And the way we would do that visibly is in the context of the local church. The only possible point of living these five virtues out visibly is that there is a visible unity for God's people. And that is the burden of Catholicity. Yes, there's an invisible unity for all Christians, and that's great, and it's a wonderful doctrine, and we can talk about it another time. But what we see in Scripture is that there also ought to be a visible unity, yes, an institutional unity among the people of God. And so, how are we to eagerly maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace? Well, by striving. Each one of us, by striving in the power of the Spirit, to live out these five virtues. And notice, it is called the unity of the Spirit. The Spirit that lives in you is the same Spirit that lives in another believer. The Holy Spirit brings us the peace of God-given harmony as a uniting bond. It is a bond, however, that may be visibly severed by sin. It may be visibly severed by the arrogance, falsehood, pride, and selfish assertions of individual members. Different factions may emerge, and different factions may pull and tug against each other. But, if they have genuine faith in the Lord, they are bonded together in Christ. They, that, the word bond is like fastened, like a belt. They are fastened together in Christ, and they will remain together. Not just invisible. It's a peace that binds believers together as the visible people of God, as the visible manifestation of the Spirit's unity. And notice also in verse 3, it says to maintain the unity. And so this particular verse is not about building. It's not about building the kingdom. That's not what this particular verse is about. It's a warning to keep the unity God has already created. It's a warning to stay within the pre-existing unity. It's a warning to maintain the unity God has already created in Christ. But the implication is that God can take away that visible unity. It's the job of the church to keep it in a visible way. It's the job of the church to stay within in a visible way, to maintain in a visible way the unity God has created in Christ. When that unity is not visible, 
we should interpret that as God's judgment against his people. And so the first thing we see is how. How do we maintain the unity of the Spirit? The second thing we need to consider is why. Why is it that God would call his people, as diverse as they are, why is it that God would call them to maintain the unity of the Spirit? This question is answered in verses 4 through 6. Beginning in verse 4, I read, There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. These verses give the rationale for the call to maintain unity. And notice it's a seven-part rationale. Verse 4 mentions one body. And so there is a focus on the singularity of the body of Christ. There are not two bodies of Christ. It's not that the Christians in this church belong to this version of the body of Christ, and then the genuine Christians in this church belong to a different body. There's not two bodies of Christ. There's not a separate body of Christ for each denomination. There's not a separate body of Christ for Christians on each continent. There is one body. When you have faith in the crucified Christ, in the resurrected Christ, who paid the penalty for sin and was raised victorious over sin, that faith unites you to the one body of Christ, and it's the same for the Christians in that church over there. Amen. Verse 4 mentions one spirit. And so there is a focus on the singularity of the Holy Spirit. We mentioned that a moment ago. There's a unity of the spirit. Verse 4 says one hope. And so there's a focus on the singularity of Christian hope. There are not two Christian hopes. There is one hope. Christian hope is one of those neglected things we don't emphasize enough. It's one of the, the means of persevering faith, though, and so we should emphasize it. Christian hope is that one day I will see Christ face to face, because I've never seen him face to face. Do you realize the conundrum? Faith is believing in something you have not seen. You haven't seen it yet. Hope is seeing it. You are going to see Christ face to face. You will stand before Christ holy and blameless, presumably sharing a single hope with the people in the other church down the road. Verse 5 mentions one Lord. And so there's a focus on the singularity of the Lord Jesus. So the, the, the term Lord here is a reference to Jesus Christ. And since Jesus is most clearly seen as Lord in his resurrection and exaltation, this is about the conquering Lord who reigns in victory. There's one faith mentioned in verse 5. And so there's a focus on the singularity of Christian faith. And the faith mentioned in this particular verse is primarily a reference to the content of the profession of faith. Faith in Jesus Christ. And so the profession of faith is manifested in the content of a common confession. In other words, when the Christians in this church profess faith in Christ, it's the same faith that's being professed in this church over here. Verse 5 mentions one baptism. There is a focus on the singularity of baptism. 
Baptism is the act in which believers are joined with Christ in his death and resurrection. Moreover, as Galatians 3, 27 and 28 indicates, a common baptism is capable of breaking down divisive barriers. Barriers between Jew and Greek, barriers between slave and free, barriers between men and women. So then it shouldn't be beyond the pale to think that it can also break down barriers between Baptists and men. <laughs> Verse 6 mentions one God. So there's a focus on the singularity of God the Father. And you see that mentioned there, the language of one God and Father of all. And so it's saying one God of you all. There's one God over all true Christian churches. And this refers to the family of the redeemed people of God. And so what we see here is a seven-part rationale for the call to maintain unity. And I want you to notice how this is rooted in the Trinity. The Spirit is mentioned in verse 4. The Son is mentioned in verse 5. The God the Father is mentioned in verse 6. And so notice how Father, Son, and Spirit together underwrite the unity of the church. So why do we maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace? Well, Christian unity arises from the unity of our God. Which means that every inappropriate act of division among the people of God says something untrue about our God to the world. Invisibly so. And as we'll consider in a moment, that is the message preached that the world hears above all the rest. When we engage in inappropriate acts of division, it displays a message that detracts from the one true God, that detracts from the unity of God the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And so we've seen how. How do we maintain the unity of the Spirit? And we've seen why. Why does God call us to maintain the unity of the Spirit? So now we need to consider the implications of the how and the why for our understanding of Catholicity. So consider this analogy I first heard from John Stott. Imagine there's a couple named Mr. and Mrs. Armstrong. They have three sons. They are one family. Marriage and parenthood unite them. Now imagine that over time, the Armstrong family falls apart. Father and mother quarrel, keep an uneasy truce until the kids are out of the house. Then once all the kids leave, they get a divorce. The three boys also quarrel a lot. They quarrel with each other. They quarrel with their parents. One son moves west. One son moves east. One son moves north. They never talk, text, or otherwise keep in touch. The boys are so determined to break from the family that they go down to their local courthouse and change their surname. Now, it's hard to imagine a family more severed than this. But when the DNA test comes back, what will it say? Will it say they are family or will it say they are not family? Well, when the DNA test comes back, it will show they are blood relation. Here's the point. The true church of all genuine believers 
has an indestructible unity. Whatever the visible message preached is, there is an indestructible unity. When the DNA test comes back, it shows we are all related. It shows that we all have the same Father, the same Lord, and the same Spirit. And the fact that the American church is now chopped into many pieces and sold for parts is not an excuse for you in your local church to participate in the tragedy. On the contrary, we are to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace for all those who share a true and genuine Christian faith. Yes, there is a time we need to break away. This is clear in 1 John 2, 19. There is a time for separation when there is, a, uh, when there is, when there is false teaching, when there is, uh, when there is heresy, when there is not a sincere and genuine faith in the God of the Bible. There, there's a time for separation. But for those who share a true and genuine Christian faith, separation ought not be our default. Why not? Well, because as Paul makes clear in 1 Corinthians 1, 10 through 17, Christ is not divided. And that's why we at Trinity Reformed Church are committed to the principle of Catholicity. And here's what it means in practice. We will not divide over socioeconomic status. White collar and blue collar are welcome here. We will not divide over dietary restrictions. Gluten-free and meat and potatoes are welcome here. We will not divide over competing definitions of reform. Some like to label themselves truly reformed. Others label themselves reformed Baptist and many other labels. All are welcome here, even if you don't identify as reformed at all. We will not divide on educational background. Whether you're an academic theologian or not, whether you like sports or not, you're welcome here. We will not divide over COVID. You do not have to, to agree to a predetermined opinion about masks or COVID or any of all that stuff. All are welcome here. And we will not divide over the credo versus pedo baptism question. Now this one requires a bit more explanation. Some sincere and genuine Christians baptize their infants. This is called pedo-baptism. Pedo is Greek for infant, so it's infant baptism. And it's the official teaching of this church. Some sincere and genuine Christians delay baptism until there's a profession of faith. That's called credo-baptism. We do not divide on this issue. Now, let me be clear that our primary confessional document is the Westminster Confession of Faith, and it confesses the doctrine of infant baptism, and therefore it is the official teaching and position of Trinity Reformed Church, and we will teach it. But we do so with charity. We will not throw rocks at the other side, or imply that they are less sincere Christians than us. We will not do it with pride, as quite frankly has been done a lot. Credo-Baptists, that is, those who want to delay baptism until there's a profession of faith, they will not be treated as second-class Christians. Too many Credo-Baptists who have fallen within some 
part of the spectrum of reform, who agree with the Westminster Confession of Faith on every other point, find themselves having to retreat to a church that they disagree with on virtually everything except the baptism question. And that is ridiculous. They are welcome here. Our deep conviction is that the church ought to practice a charitable Catholicity on this issue. And we recognize that both Pado-Baptists and Credo-Baptists are concerned to be faithful to Scripture, and both groups can make a plausible biblical argument for their people, even though we have a conviction about which one is right. And so for those who desire to delay the baptism of their children until there's a confession of faith, the elders of Trinity Reformed Church will defer to the head of household while making clear our conviction that we think the covenant sign ought to be applied to infants. But we will baptize your children, and we will work with a smile, and we will rejoice together in God's work in that child's life. Now, some might object, and they might say, ah, this has been tried and it doesn't work. We, 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 this has been tried, we've tried to allow the coexistence of these two positions, and it doesn't work. Wayne Grudy has said this, for instance. And the problem with that argument is that it's patently false. It may be the case that a very small number have tried it, and for a very small number of churches, it didn't work. But the CREC denomination, which has been around for over 20 years, has been practicing the mutual recognition of baptism, as Peter Michael calls it, for several decades. And if I'm not mistaken, it was one of the founding issues of the denomination itself. And so it only doesn't work if you don't want it to work. And it will only work if you want it to work. And, grounding all of that in verse 2, if you practice humility, gentleness, patience, and forbearing love, not only can it work, but I submit to you that the church will thrive under the mutual recognition of baptism. Why will the church thrive? Well, it's a long answer, and I'm going to sum it up in 60 seconds as we close. But the reason the church will thrive is because if you look at the spiritual decay of the American evangelical church, which has been well documented, and I won't re rehearse it for you here, part of the reason for the decay is the division in the church on this issue. But if you check the DNA test, it says we are all family. It's not that family is easy, but when it comes to family, you make it work. One side may pull and tug against the other, but they are bonded together. They are fastened together in Christ, and they will remain together. But if we continue to preach a message of division to the church, Despite all of our well-articulated gospel sermons, what the world actually sees is the division. Amen. And that's why the church will thrive when we come together, especially within reform circles, on the question of baptism and figure it out and practice humility. And so our desire at Trinity Reform Church is to visibly reflect, not just talk about unity. This is what usually unity sermons are. It's a bunch of talk. We don't want to just talk anymore. We want to visibly reflect the DNA union of the people of God. Let's close by praying together. Blessed Father, 
God of all mercy, we ask that you would pour the benefits of unity upon us. You have called us, you have justified us, you have set us apart and glorified us in your Son. May you give us a visible unity as we submit to the Lordship of Christ. We pray this for the sake of your name. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you want to find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com. That's trinityreformedkirk.com. Oh,